Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. This is Leanne Nguyen saying hello to you uh, from Voice America. I'm very glad to find you all again. I hope you have been well uh, in this past uh, few weeks because uh, the nation that we live in in America here has been convulsed with many upsetting news and quite a few protest marches all over the nation about the images of migrant children being separated from their parents. And all over the country, uh, people protested that policy. You know, keep families together. Think about the traumatizing effects that forcible early separations have on young children. Such was the cry. On some of my liberal educated activist shrink listservs, there were even circulated first person accounts of Holocaust survivors who were separated from their parents by the Nazis. Um, it was circulated by way of reminding us of what could happen again. Now, at first, I was a little bit puzzled by this outrage. What is it about this particular piece of the anti-immigrant policy that caught people's attention, that grabbed people's heart? What is it about this that offended people's sense of decency and mobilized them to protest, to cry, this is not who we are? And then as the outrage mounted and the protesting went on and on about family separation, I started to get angry, to tell you the truth. Folks, this has been going on well before Trump. Families were separated during slavery. Families all over the world have been separated, killed, maimed by U.S. foreign policy. And families were split up under the previous administration by the mass deportations that were the political compromise by Obama. Did you know that federal funding under Obama was increased for foster care agencies so that these agencies could care for children who were being separated from their immigrant parents at the border? Where was the outrage then? And I worked on so many cases where families faced the agonizing decisions about whether to take their American-born children with them as they are deported so that they can continue to grow up together or leave these children behind, these U.S.-born, citizen-born children, so that they can continue to grow up in the only country that they have known, but then would have to do so without their deported parents. And I have worked on cases where the elderly parents or the partners suffering from AIDS die a slow death of heartbreak and also of lack of daily medical support because the daughters from the West Indies or the boyfriends from South America were barred from being reunited with them for lack of immigration papers. Where was the outrage then? Fine, it's politics. Politicians do what they need to do in order to do what they deem important to their purpose, to their legacy, Obama as well as Trump. That's understandable. Not acceptable, but understandable. What is of interest to me is that we, 
the people deem to be acceptable or unacceptable, what we choose to protest and what we choose to ignore or accept, what we invoke, the narratives or the moral principles to justify our outrage. We should not repeat what the Nazis did to the European Jews. We should not separate the nuclear family. We should not allow gunmen to kill our children. What about the policy of detaining people who come to our shore asking for help, for asylum? So, fine, we don't separate the children from their parents, but it's okay to imprison them altogether just because they're not U.S. citizens, just because they're not white? In the protests against the family separation policy, the predominant trope is that of children being ripped apart from their protector provider, being scarred by the disruption in the connection, in the attachment to their security base. But what about the trauma of being detained with your parents, of having to witness day in, day out, your parents' despair, their helplessness, their degradation? We're not concerned about the trauma of having the attachment be disrupted, which is a I mean, what I meant is we are right now, I'm sorry, concerned about that particular trauma of people, of children uh, being separated, of the attachment being disrupted, which is a very common, valued, and much relied upon developmental model in Western Eurocentric prototypical nuclear family culture. But we don't care so much about the trauma of seeing your parent be traumatized, the trauma of witnessing and absorbing your parents' sorrow and terror while you and they are being imprisoned and humiliated and terrorized. That particular trauma, that is the psychic lining of the lives of slaves, of poor people, of immigrants, that trauma is not so much being invoked in these protest marches. Because that's not what... I think white liberal educated people who are marching in protest know about in their own history and therefore that's not what they would be preoccupied with in their empathy. They cry, keep the families together, keep the children with their parents. What about do not keep these immigrant families in jail? What about give people the dignity of freedom of movement and the decency of being treated like a fellow guest, like a fellow human being? Because let's not delude ourselves. The detention centers that are making billions of dollars for private contractors, they're not housing Norwegians. So we are outraged about the zero tolerance policy against immigrants. We're so upset by the in-your-face ugliness of child-snatching America. What about the fact that this country has one of the highest incarceration rates, one of the highest casualties by gun? one of the highest infant mortality rates among European countries. It's no news that this country has the death penalty still. Where are the marches to protest the fact that we are killing our own children, our own citizens? Black infants in this country are more than twice as likely to die as white infants. This disparity is actually wider, do you know that, than it was in 1850 before slavery ended, when black women were still considered chattel. Do we care? Where is the march of, for, for the equality in health care and economic compensation for women, for black women? And at the one-year anniversary mark of Hurricane Maria, close to 5,000 people have died in Puerto Rico as a result of that natural disaster. But is it natural that citizens 
colonized citizens of the U.S. should die from lack of medical help, of dehydration, of heart attacks, because the mainland U.S. government run by white men who are beholden to rich white men, in most cases, do not deem them human, not worthy of compassion and assistance. Is it natural? Do we care? Where are the marches for the effects of U.S. colonization? This is not America. This is not us. This is not who we are. Some things are okay for us to be, and some things are not acceptable. We all humans are capable of empathy, as well as fear, hate, love. Whether we have it is not a question. Where and how we direct these human impulses is the question. What makes us human? What makes us more human than otherwise is how we choose to express our love and our fear and who we choose to direct our love and fear toward. We were all born with empathy. We were taught to care. We're all capable of caring, even Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions. What distinguishes us from one another is how we care and what we are directed to care about, what we are impelled to fight for. And the thing, the force that directs our care, our empathy and outrage, reveals much about who we are. It reveals what we think of ourselves as humans, what we want for ourselves, of the world that we inhabit. The lives that we value and deem worthy of protection reveal much about what we cherish about our own life. There is no universal, no uniform trigger for moral outrage. There are no immutable basis for moral action, no inborn humanitarian civic impulse. There are memories and childhood ideals that guide what we are willing to recognize of the suffering in others. There are particular desire and fear that inspire our vision of the acceptable offense versus the obscene violation. There are hurts and gains that we seek to defend when we step into the line of fire or when we run for cover and turn the other way. It's about us. It's not about these other unfortunate people. When we protest or fight for some cause, it's us, our own selfish individual humanity with all its hurts and glories that we are sheltering. It's not about the unfortunate others. And so the question I like to pose to you all is this. What do you value? What do you deem acceptable? What do you find offensive and why? What is America and why? Today, I would like to continue the conversation with my friend and colleague, Carol Prendergast. As you know from my previous introduction, uh, from two weeks ago, Carol is has been a tireless human rights advocate. We used to work together. And when you do this work, you know, a lot of emotional, personal stuff comes out through the passion, the frustration, the joining together in our devotion to a case or a cause or in our outrage against some event. So we in the human rights world, like comrades in the trenches, know a lot implicitly about each other because we witness each other in action. We watch each other's passion and ethics unfold. But I, Carol and I, we've never asked each other the questions of, how did you get here? What drove you here? What drives you now? 
What is this about for you? How did this become your purpose? How does anything become your purpose? What do you try to save? The world or yourself? So I hope to have that conversation with Carol today. Um, the conversation about, you know, what does her work reveal about her true purpose in life? How is work a solution, an answer to the questions that you, Carol, can have or had about life, about your life? Now, I want you all who are listening to know that this conversation, these questions I would like to ask my friend about her work with human rights um, advocacy, these questions that I ask myself about my work with immigrants and trauma survivors are not just specific to trauma work or to the human rights world. These questions can and should be asked about any work that any of us do. Often, you know, I get the reaction of, oh, it's amazing what you do. Um, you know, it's so special. As if the work that I do is is something particular, uh, something very specific. Now, work is work. No one line of work is more noble than another or more uh, lucrative or affordable than another. I had um, a very wealthy uh, and, and well-known psychoanalyst say to me, I admire you to do what you're doing because I would like to, but I can't afford to. You know, I had to put two kids through medical school. Um, he charged $350 a session, but he can't afford to do the work that I do. Noble me. Now, also, people are people. No one patient is more noble than another, just as no one human is more worthy than another. Immigrant, my immigrant and trauma patients are no different from all other patients. Everybody is human. Everybody wants the same thing, to love and be loved, to do work that has meaning and that can feed their family as well as nourish their soul, to be treated with decency, to live in safety and dignity. We all want the same things. We all need the same things from life, from one another. Yes, we may suffer differently, but our suffering ultimately, eventually, reveals at the core the same longings and hurts. So what makes us different from one another? It's how we struggle, how we pursue or run away from our longings, how we inhabit our hurts, how we let life touch us and move us toward our purpose, our birthright to be true to our nature, our birthright to be fully, safely, joyfully ourselves. We all, those of us who have thrown ourselves into this business of living, who have accepted the call of being human, all of us have been wounded in one way or another. By the same wounds, loss, abandonment, disappointment, rejection, devaluation, violation. What distinguishes us from one another, the survivors from the victims, the heroes from the murderers, the beautiful from the corrupted, is how we manage the wound, how we inhabit the wound, how we let the light enter into us through the wound, and how we let it show us toward the opening, the crack, that may reveal to us our deep, true, hidden nature and our unclaimed purpose in life. That is what I would like to talk to my friend and guest about today. Previously, I asked Carol to reflect with me on the assumptions 
and aspirations behind the human rights movement. Presently, today, I would like to ask her to reflect with me on the hopes and solutions that her human rights work carries toward her own personal life. It's quite a broad, deep, hefty question, but hey, it never hurts to try. <laughs> Good morning, Carol. Good morning. <laughs> I know. We're, we're, I, I, I wanted to uh, say to you about your introductory comments that I think... Um, it was very eloquent, and a couple of things struck me that you take for granted, but I think everyone is not aware of. Just the simple statement that you and I have shared with each other so many times, which is people are the same underneath. We all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. And for many people, they feel that that's not true if someone is a different race or different ethnicity or a different uh, socioeconomic class, they're somehow the other. They're different. They have Mm -hmm. different values. They have different wants. And I think that's the very biggest challenge is for people to see others who are different than them in different circumstances as the same as they are. And I think that's part of why there has been this outrage about children being torn from their families. The media is covering it, and it's dramatic, and it's in the public spotlight, and there are very few people who cannot identify with how they would feel as either a parent or as a child in that situation. So I think it's an issue that has managed to compel people to say who would be able to tolerate that you know who would be who would want to do that and i think that it is a rare i agree with everything you said about the uh immigration policies our foreign policies which we as americans don't own you know when we think of Many situations, say in in the Middle East, people do not connect our foreign policy with much of the misery that is happening there now. Um, But this view of children being torn away is something I can't imagine many people not identifying and being disturbed by. So I because we all have been children that way, right? Because we we all have been children, so we know we can recognize the terror and the wrenching. You recognize the humanness. And one thing I've noticed um, sometimes in the comments on different articles in the paper are there are some people who just blame the parents and say, (laughs) well, I feel bad for the children, but the parents were irresponsible and shouldn't have brought them here, which, of course, begs the question and also reminds me that in our last conversation, this was just beginning to surface and, and get a lot of media exposure. And we were talking about how, in our view, these parents are trying to protect their children and save them from uh-huh. a terrible life, from violence, from poverty. Uh-huh. And so we were seeing the parents as heroic people willing to take chances to save their family. We weren't seeing them as illegal people, people committing crimes. Or irresponsible and, um, parents. 
Yeah, irresponsible. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are taking great risks, but I don't think most of them are taking that risk lightly. Um, so it speaks to me and to you and to many others that they must be in terrible straits to take that risk. Right. Um, Carol, let, we, we're coming up uh, so quickly for our first break. Uh, let's do that. And when we come back, okay. let's, I, I would like to talk with you about this, this thing of, of being able to recognize, you know, or not willing to recognize uh, in the other person the, 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 the plight or the suffering. And I want to mm-hmm. ask you a little bit more about um, what you bring of yourself to the work. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll be right back in a few minutes, okay. people. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone. I am here with my friend and uh, former colleague, Carol Prendergast. Carol started out her career as uh, a constitutional, uh, uh, well, as, as, as a lawyer, fighting for um, death row inmates and very concerned about constitutional um, issues. And then she moved on into the human rights world, um, helping set up 
uh, treatment centers and helping uh, to facilitate uh, policies for human rights protection. And um, and she has been going nonstop since then. And Carol, I remember when we worked together in the torture center, we had many conversations about, you know, what was going on. And I was always struck by one statement that you made, something along the line of, well, let's face it, torture is always going to happen. We can't stop people from torturing each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then what then, right? Just like right now, we can't stop people from killing each other, from acting out their fears and vulnerabilities by kicking others down the gutter. So mm-hmm. what to do? You know, what is the the sane, ethical, emotionally stabilizing response? Um, but so I, I want to ask you really bluntly, you know, why do you do what you do? What, what's what's in this for you? How is this work uh, a solution for you? Well, um, like many people, I came into the work um, without really thinking about why I was coming into it. It was just obvious to me from a very early age <clears throat> that there was a randomness to life as to what your circumstances were and that it should be much more equitable, and that it was unfair for some people to be marginalized and oppressed. And um, as I look back on it, I can see what the seeds of that were. Uh, Some of it was that my grandparents played a very big role in my life, and my grandfather had been uh, an IRA member, so he was involved in the the fight from 1916 against the British in Ireland and then continued after the partition of Ireland to fight for the unification of Ireland. And he was a political prisoner and was tortured. And um, he was held in very high esteem in our family because of his political conviction. So I think there was always... um, an aura that fighting against oppression was very important. And another aspect, which I really didn't think about until much later in life, was that uh, my grandfather um, was vehemently against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church had played a role in facilitating uh, the British arrest of many IRA members in that you're supposed to be able to find sanctuary in a church. And it was his experience that it was in a church that he was arrested because a priest tipped off British authorities that he was there. And the church, which he grew up believing in, turned out to be allied with the oppressor. My grandmother, on the other hand, who shared my grandfather's political beliefs and admired him greatly and loved him deeply, as he did her, she remained a devout Catholic. So when I was growing up and seeing them, I saw a a wife who was devoutly Catholic, went to church, believed in all the dogma of the church, and my grandfather only entered a church for the marriage of his children or the funeral, possibly, of a friend and otherwise had no use for the church. And Mm -hmm. yet, I never saw them argue about that. I never saw Mm -hmm. that uh, interfere with their love for one another. And it wasn't until much later that I thought, 
how did that happen? How did they manage right. to resolve that? You know, that would seem like a mm-hmm. very major divide in a, mm-hmm. in a couple, in a family. And yet it wasn't because the, the feeling of, of personal love and attachment uh, was there, and it overcame political or religious differences. So I didn't realize this at the time, but as I look back on it, I think that was very, both his political activity, his imprisonment and torture, and their dealing with their religious belief system um, was very informative in terms mm. of my feelings, both of political activism and also of tolerance and not really mm. seeing these things as such a divide between people. Mm-hmm. So that when I went into this work, it just seemed, for example, the death penalty work, it not only seemed wrong to me that we were executing people, and when I got involved in it, there had been a, a three-year hiatus of not executing people because it had come before the Supreme Court, a case had come before the Supreme Court to decide whether it was constitutional to have the death penalty or not. And mm-hmm. so states suspended executions for three years until it was decided. It was ultimately decided it was constitutional, um, <laughs> but it excluded certain circumstances where uh, it was not. And so my right. involvement in it came from the race-based um, application of the death penalty, that it was imbalanced in the way that Mm -hmm. applied to uh, African-American prisoners as opposed to white prisoners. And it always just seemed natural to me to want to fight against that kind of discrepancy and also that kind of lack of humanity to even have a death penalty. So I think, you know, like many people, I just came to it and realized in retrospect what some of the factors were that influenced me. Well, two things, two reactions I have. What what you describe of your grandparents is just really amazing in light of what's going on today, where I hear so many people say, you know, for example, when they go on a date or when they sit down for Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. dinner, you know, I will never give that person a second look if he or she is a Trump supporter, you know, and just just sort of like that. that, And you hear about families, you know, there were articles last year or the year before about how do you go to Thanksgiving dinner after the election and deal with family members who have different mm-hmm. political opinions. But it raises the question, though, of, of why is it so impossible? You know, what is the hurt, you know, that is mm-hmm. so unbridgeable? Like, what did your grandfather do? How was he able to overcome the hurt and the hate, right? To mm-hmm. to, to look across at this Catholic woman and and, mm-hmm. and still bring to her all of himself, including the, the, the wounds, but mm-hmm. still be able to connect with her and recognize the human in the Catholic mm-hmm. enemy, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, the, and the for other- her to truly admire him in terms of, I mean, I think it was part of what drew her to him was his courage and political conviction, mm-hmm. and yet see that that very courage and political conviction created a schism between them in some ways. And I mm-hmm. wish they were, I, they were alive so that I could, as an adult, ask them that question. How did they manage that? Right. Um, right. But what but you I got... Though, mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, you know, what I understand from what you're saying is that from growing up with them, you sort of absorb implicitly, right, the, the, an idea of what is possible. Right. And, that, and you felt yeah. that informed your efforts. You wouldn't be daunted, right, by the divide, by the impossible. Mm-hmm. 
But the other question, though, uh, that, that flies right under that, that I want to ask you is what drives you? What, mm-hmm. what is the, the, the gratification, for example, that you get from this work? Because it's, it's backbreaking, it's thankless. And by the way, uh, people don't know, Carol, you're not being paid for this. This is not like, at this point, it's not a right. job. Somebody, you know, you're right. doing this for your, <laughs> your own, like, craziness or whatever. So yes, what, what that's is, true. Do, to put it crassly, no, it is a madness of, of, of some kind when we are so <laughs> wedded to our work. So what is in it right. for you? Well, I think it's a, a sense of being part of tilting some of the inequity and oppression in the world. And I was, I was thinking, I've thought often about my transition from doing legal work, which really my goal at that period in my life was I, I, I believed and I still believe that we need systemic change, change the realities in the world. And I had more of a belief when I was younger or more optimism, let's say. I still have a belief, but my optimism sometimes wanes a bit about changing these systemic issues so that I felt the law was a vehicle or a tool for me to help change policy, help change legal precedent, and it, it, it is. But what I did find was that the role I was playing was always confronting only the darkness of what people are capable of and the victories in terms of either policy or legal cases, were so few that it was hard not to burn out. And Mm -hmm. in the middle of my doing that work, um, I, um, I stopped working because I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 30. So I was out of the workforce for about four years, and I recovered. And when I came back, I thought you know, I want to do something that's going to give me more positive energy, you know, more positive mm-hmm. feedback. So at that point, uh, although my work turned to the international sphere, which in a way is you know, much larger than the national policy issue, um, I put more focus on people who had suffered human rights abuses because, and again, I didn't, particularly think this out. It just felt like it gave more positive energy to me. But I've realized as the years have gone on, particularly in the last 10 years, which is also the time that I have not been working within an office structure, um, what, what it brings to me to work more with helping individuals or promoting individual recovery um, and hopefully flourishing is that it gives me a chance to see not only the darkness, but also the inspiration of how people do overcome. So that I think in the work we do, um, it is very disheartening. It's very painful. But when you have the people connection, um, the people meaning the people who are victimized by this system or by these abuses or by violence or marginalization, 
you are exposed to a positive side of humanity. Um, and that, for me, keeps me going. But the biggest challenge is to deal with the duality. How do you deal with the fact that there are people who feel, you know, they're, they're going to be murderous, they're going to uh, participate in genocide, or they're going to participate in just marginalizing people? Um, and that's very dark to see. And the mm-hmm. only way I find to deal with that is, to, and I think that you as a colleague and, and, uh, and other colleagues have helped me see that those people uh, also have been wounded and abused. Their, their actions are totally unacceptable, but I came to see through working with the torture treatment programs that because of being more in contact with psychologists and psychiatrists, I became much more aware of uh, the perpetrators as sort of the flip side, as you say, of how people deal with the wounding. So I've Mm -hmm. never chosen to work with perpetrators or perpetrators who have been um, uh, in treatment or Mm -hmm. sought to change their behavior. I identify with the people who have been victimized by their behavior, but mm-hmm. it has helped me to to get more of a grasp around how can this dark and light exist together. So I think mm-hmm. the my exposure to um, colleagues and people in allied professions and the people we're trying to help has helped me get more of a grasp of the complexity of life. Okay. You know, I, I'm reminded here of a thing that uh, one of my former guests, uh, Julian, you, you know, uh, who had been, who had gone through unimaginable traumas and violations mm-hmm. and had done a lot of work on himself to get to a place of light. And he said something very valuable, uh, which is that his response now and what he wishes for all of us um, in terms of response to somebody who is atrocious, you know, is what mm-hmm. happened to you? You know, and that was yeah. so simple, but so valuable. And it, it's an impossible question to ask uh, for, for right. us to behold. You know, what happened to you as opposed to how dare you, right? Right, <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. If, if we could only, as a nation, ask that simple question of our neighbors, of, 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 of mm-hmm. you know, of a, a Republican, and really hold the person to a real answer, then maybe yes. we can go somewhere instead of all of this screaming and by you know and partisanship and and, and hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, you know, so, so many people. Somebody was just telling me the other day that he had had neighbors for many years, lovely people, very involved with his family, and he recently saw them and was at a, a birthday party um, for one of the, the neighbors, and the entire group were turned out to be Trump supporters and uh, were distributing a book written by George W. Bush. And he was just stunned because it flew in the face of who he felt these people (laughs) are. Um, And, you know, I'll be honest, I would not go out of my way to have dinner with a Trump supporter. Um, And I have to work really hard to think about what is going on with people doing that, and certainly what is going on with people perpetrating uh, violence. Um, 
it, it is very hard, and I don't think any of us move towards that in an in embracing, gee, I can't wait to find out, you know, what motivates them kind of way. It's more of a challenge for us to not demonize them because mm-hmm. we work in a field where we're saying the people we're working in support of have been demonized by other people. And so not to become part of that cycle is extremely challenging. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's break for now, and we'll talk Mm -hmm. more when we come back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone. So what I have just been reminded of in uh, the previous segments of my conversation with Carol is that there are many things that drive how we live, how we work, right, that we may not be conscious of or consciously claiming. So Carol was talking about uh, retrospectively realizing the seeds um, that formed uh, her work. Uh, And I want to know, Carol, you were just mentioning your grandparents, but there must have been many other seeds or there might still be Mm -hmm. seeds planted now. 
do you think, do you know, do you think you can grasp now the things that, the subterranean things that drive you? Well, I would say, again, this is all in retrospect, because as you move forward, you're not always knowing what's motivating you, but as you move forward and you look back on your decisions, um, one of the things, and again, this is just one seed, uh, that I think made me very sensitive to um, the randomness of life is that I was born with albinism, and from the albinism, it, it, cause, it causes ocular albinism, which makes me practically blind. I'm legally blind, and it can't be yeah. corrected through surgery or glasses or anything, and so I look very different. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents did not... Um, I mean, when I look back, it must have been difficult to see a little kid racing around who couldn't see where she was going. Um, <laughs> but they somehow managed <laughs> to contain anxiety and uh, never gave me uh, a feeling that my differences were emphasized. But one of the things they did that I think was very positive for me was they were very aware that um, in a lot of, say, public school settings, I might be not only ostracized, but uh, in the law that tries to help people with disabilities, I probably would have been mainlined into a disability program and not been able to have an education where I was socializing with people who didn't have disabilities. Again, it's one of those steps that is taken to, to help children. Uh, Mm -hmm. with disabilities, but can also isolate them. And so they were aware of that, and they enrolled me when I was three in a Montessori school. Uh, So in a Montessori school, the focus is very much on sharing, cooperation. There are deep values to it and to encourage a love of learning. And they felt in this environment, I would be... Uh, in a more protected environment and an environment in which I could flourish. Well, it had the benefit for me that, uh, again, I don't know what other kids thought about me having white hair and very light eyes. And sometimes kids would ask me the way kids do in this very kind of open way. They'd say, are your eyes blue? Because they're blue, but they're very pale. And they'll say, mm-hmm. are your eyes blue? Or why is your hair like that? Or why is your skin so light? But they ask the question in an inquiring way, not mm-hmm. in a bullying way, not in a, a, a separating Apologizing way. way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so I was able to accept the I don't know what answer I gave, something like, I don't know, I was born this way. Um mm. But I didn't feel attacked for my differentness. And again, I think these were children whose parents had these underlying values, which is why they sent them to a Montessori school, but also had the financial ability to do so. And Mm -hmm. so when I looked back, I thought, well, I had early exposure to people seeing my differences, my differentness, and me seeing my differentness and my disability, but not feeling like it was a barrier. And I never would have had that experience if my parents had not had the financial resources to provide that to me. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. one, it was the first of, you know, a lifetime 
of times when I realized, had I been born in a different culture, in a different socioeconomic group, um, or to, pe- to parents maybe who couldn't deal as well with my differentness, um, my whole life would have been different. And so, mm-hmm. again, that issue of inequity, I, here I was able to deal with my own differentness and my own disability, but I realized in a different situation I might not have been. Yeah, um, right, right, right. So I think that and was then, another seed for me. Right, right. And it made I, me I, want other people to have that kind of experience and have it yes. not depend on their financial resources. Huh. Yeah, that's that's true. Now I see it clearly. And you know what's fascinating? Listen to you is I'm having memories now of my own childhood experiences with being different. And that is mm-hmm. one of my seats. You know, when I escaped, you know, so I landed in, in, in the West, right, looking very different, being mm-hmm. dressed differently and, and behaving and acting and, and talking differently, too. And I was asked mm-hmm. the exact same questions of, like, why is your hair like that? Why why is your name so funny, you know? Um, right. Why this, why that? Why are you like that? And But unlike you, I didn't have the language Mm-hmm. You know, to tell my story, to say why. Yes. And I just realized yes. listening to you now that that is one of the things that drive my work because now I tell my patients stories with a vengeance. <laughs> you yes. know, people yes. who do not speak the language or who cannot speak because they are so traumatized, I go for that story that would explain to the world who they are and why they are the way they are. And that's why. That's how you and I came up, you know, ended up together, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. The many I, well, different paths. I had, I, the, the issue of language is key. Now, did you have the experience of kids asking you that as sort of an open-ended question? Because I'm so concerned. It seems like nowadays there's such a, uh, a whole culture of bullying, which I didn't experience, but might have in other circumstances. Did you feel that you were judged or that it was a hostile question? Uh, it wasn't. I don't think that it was. These were kids in France who were like, you know, uh, 12, 13. But it mm-hmm. was it, it was my sense of helplessness, uh, uh, you know, of mm. emotional muteness as well as, as linguistic uh, incompetence that mm-hmm. made me experience the question as... Um, as 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 violent, uh, but the other yeah. reaction I have is this this thing of, of kids question. You know, if such a kid now, uh, for example, in Brooklyn, asked a question, the parents would swoop in and say, "Shh, don't say that, right? right. Don't don't be mm-hmm. because it's not nice." For example, you, you know, my, my my kid, for example, said like, "Why is that man only having one leg?" Well, it's a good question, right? But they right. would be discouraged right. from that out of like the thing of be sensitive. But it's it's like now the curiosity, paradoxically, empathy and curiosity are being so discouraged in the name of being empathetic and respectful. Right. That's that's a very good point, and and it. It helps because it's natural for kids to be curious, and it's natural for the person they're curious about to be able to express why they're different or how they're different. Um, I had an experience um, uh, as, um, as an adult, and I was doing some teaching with teenagers, and uh, they were aware of my visual disability, 
But one of them said to me one day, you know, one thing that I don't understand is I know you don't see well. And the kids were very, um, they were very in touch with this so that they'd always say, you know, hi, Carol, it's Brett or whatever, you know, even because they weren't sure whether I could see them or differentiate who they were. And just on their own, they had that kind of intuitive sensitivity. And one of the kids said to me once, you know, one thing I don't understand is I know you can't see, but sometimes I'm down the hall and you'll say, you know, hi, John, or come back here, John. How do you see me from way down the hall? And I had never thought about that until Mm -hmm. this teenager asked me, young teenager asked me Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. and it made me think about it, and when I thought about it, I thought, well, I saw, I see you in the mornings, and so I know what color t-shirt you're wearing or whatever, so sometimes it was something like a color, and sometimes it was something just in the way that they move, that I recognize their movement, but it was interesting to me that I never would have thought about that unless they Mm -hmm. had asked me that question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of asking and knowing, we have about a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you this mm-hmm. question, and it's unfair, but I want to pick your brain. <laughs> what? Tell, tell me, t- share with us one thing that you learned about human nature, about people that, that you didn't know before uh, when you were like, you know, that albino little girl running around. What, what have you learned mm-hmm. that you have to digest, that you're still trying to understand? Well... I mean, the biggest issue is is what we had talked about uh, a little bit earlier about how some people express their wounding through aggression. That's just an underlying question always, and I'm always looking to learn more about that. But I would say something I learned just in the last 10 years or so is I've been doing more work on kind of cross-sections, corporate, public, NGO, faith-based community, a groups coming together to uh, improve situations. And for many years, my knee-jerk response to everything was if somebody was working for a corporation, they were exploitative, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have uh, human values, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that was just my own knee-jerk bias. And it's not that there's not an excellent point to be made about uh, capital following cheap labor and uh, abuses and so on. But what I did find which surprised me is that I shouldn't just be looking at the, at the nonprofit, you know, NGO human rights community to look for good people who care. Somebody can work for a huge multinational corporation, uh, which maybe in general I don't like or I don't approve of their labor practices, but there can be people there who are genuinely trying to improve the world. And whether their motive is an economic motive, which was always what I felt, well, a corporation won't do it unless it's economically uh, advantageous to them. And that may even be true, but it's made me experience in terms of looking at the other, the other that I always looked at that was terrible was, you know, the corporate culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm now pressed more to not see that as a monolith, but see that there are some people within that culture who are really, you know, trying to do their work 
prosper in their company, but also genuinely trying to have a positive impact in the world. And that's Mm. actually been fairly new to me, to really know deep in my heart that that's true. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for being so candid. And uh, we're coming to a close. And um, I love you, Carol. (laughs) (laughs) I love you for your generosity, uh, especially in terms of taking the time out and the heart to share with me and the listeners about your experience. And uh, next week, I will be going solo. Nobody will join me. uh, And I thought I would take the time to put myself on the line uh, after all this time of grilling people and share with you all about what I know uh, of the things that drive my work and how I lived my wounds uh, to come to where I am today. Uh, Until then, I wish you all uh, a lot of curiosity about, uh, about yourselves, about the purpose that lays hidden or that has been sacrificed in your life. And I wish you all the ability to not turn away from your wound. I wish you a lot of gratitude and bravery in engaging in in the life that has been offered to you. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.